The following is a conversation with Dalip George, a researcher at the intersection of neuroscience and artificial intelligence, co-founder of Vicarious with Scott Phoenix, and formerly co-founder of Numenta with Jeff Hawkins, who's been on this podcast, and Donna Dubinsky. From his early work on hierarchical temporal memory to recursive cortical networks to today, Dalip's always sought to engineer intelligence that is closely inspired by the human brain. As a side note, I think we understand very little about the fundamental principles underlying the function of the human brain, but the little we do know gives hints that may be more useful for engineering intelligence than any idea in mathematics, computer science, physics, and scientific fields outside of biology. And so the brain is a kind of existence proof that says it's possible. Keep at it. I should also say that brain-inspired AI is often overhyped and used as fodder just as quantum computing for uh, marketing speak. But I'm not afraid of exploring these sometimes overhyped areas since where there's smoke, there's sometimes fire. Quick summary of the ads. Three sponsors, Babbel, Raycon Earbuds, and Masterclass. Please consider supporting this podcast by clicking the special links in the description to get the discount. It really is the best way to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcast, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation. This show is sponsored by Babbel, an app and website that gets you speaking in a new language within weeks. Go to babbel.com and use code Lex to get three months free. They offer 14 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and yes, Russian. Daily lessons are 10 to 15 minutes, super easy, effective, designed by over 100 language experts. Let me read a few lines from the Russian poem Noch Ulitsa Fanar Apteka by Alexander Bloch that you'll start to understand if you sign up to Babel. Noch Ulitsa Fanar Apteka now, I say that you'll only start to understand this poem because Russian starts with a language and ends with the vodka. Now, the latter part is definitely not endorsed or provided by Babel and will probably lose me the sponsorship, but once you graduate from Babel, you can enroll in my advanced course of late-night Russian conversation over vodka. I have not yet developed an app for that. It's in progress. So get started by visiting babble.com and use code LEX to get three months free. This show is sponsored by Raycon Earbuds. Get them at buyraycon.com slash LEX. They've become my main method of listening to podcasts, audiobooks, and music when I run, do push-ups and pull-ups, or just living life. In fact, I often listen to brown noise with them when I'm thinking deeply about something. It helps me focus. They're super comfortable, pair easily, great sound, great bass, six hours of playtime. I've been putting in a lot of miles to get ready for a potential ultra marathon and listening to audiobooks on World War II. The sound is rich and really comes in clear. So again, get them at buyraycon.com slash lex. This show is sponsored by Masterclass. Sign up at masterclass.com slash lex to get a discount and to support this podcast. 
When I first heard about Masterclass, I thought it was too good to be true. I still think it's too good to be true. For 180 bucks a year, you get an all-access pass to watch courses from, to list some of my favorites, Chris Hatfield on space exploration, Neil deGrasse Tyson on scientific thinking and communication, Will Wright, creator of SimCity and Sims on game design. Every time I do this read, I really want to play a city builder game. Carlos Santana on guitar, Gary Kasparov on chess, Daniel Negrano on poker, and many more. Chris Hatfield explaining how rockets work and the experience of being launched into space alone is worth the money. By the way, you can watch it on basically any device. Once again, sign up at masterclass.com to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now, here's my conversation with Dilip George. Do you think we need to understand the brain in order to build it? Yes. If you want to build the brain, we definitely need to understand how it works. So Blue Brain or Henry Markram's project uh, is trying to build a brain without understanding it, like you know, just trying to uh, put details of the brain from neuroscience experiments into a giant simulation uh, by putting more and more neurons, more and more details. Uh, but that is not going to work uh, because when it doesn't perform as uh, what you expect it to do, then what do you do? You do you just keep adding more details. How do you debug it? So it's a so unless you understand, unless you have a theory about how the system is supposed to work, how the pieces are supposed to fit together, what they're going to contribute, you can't you can't build it at the functional level. Understand. So can you actually linger on and describe the Blue Brain project? It's kind of a fascinating uh, principle, an idea to try to simulate the brain. It's, we're talking about the human brain, right? Right. Human brains and uh, rat brains or cat brains have lots in common. That the cortex, uh, the neocortex structure is very similar. So initially they were trying to just simulate a cat brain. Uh, and uh, To understand the nature of evil. <laughs> understand the nature of evil, uh, yeah. or uh, as it happens in most of these simulations, uh, you you easily get one thing out, which is oscillations. You know, yeah. If you you sim- if you simulate a large number of neurons, they oscillate, uh, and uh, you can adjust the parameters and say that oh, oscillations match the rhythm that we see in the brain, etc. But uh, oh, I see. So like, uh, so the idea is uh, is the simulation at the level of uh, individual neurons. Yeah, so the Blue Brain project, the original idea as proposed was um, you you put very detailed biophysical neurons, uh, biophysical models of neurons, and uh, you interconnect them according to the statistics of connections that we have found from real neuroscience experiments, and then uh, turn it on and uh, see what happens. Uh, and and these neural models are, you know, incredibly complicated in themselves, right? Because these neurons are uh, modeled using uh, this uh, idea called Hodgkin-Huxley models, which are about how signals propagate in a cable. And there are uh, active dendrites, all those phenomena, which those phenomena themselves, we don't understand that well. Uh, and then uh, we put in connectivity, which is, 
part guesswork, part you know observed. And of course, if you do not have any theory about how it is supposed to work, uh, we you know we just have to take whatever comes out of it as okay. This is something interesting. But in your sense, like these models of the way signal travels along, or like with the axons and all the basic models, that's they're too crude. Oh well, actually they are pretty detailed and pretty sophisticated and they do replicate the neural dynamics if you take a single neuron and uh, you you try to uh, turn on the different channels the calcium channels and uh, uh, the different receptors uh, and see what the effect of uh, turning on or off those channels are in the neurons spike output people have built pretty sophisticated models of that and and they are i, I would say um, you know in the regime of correct well see the correctness that's interesting because you mentioned it at several levels uh, the correctness is measured by looking at some kind of aggregate statistics it it would be more of uh, the the spiking dynamics of a single spiking neuron. dynamics of a single neuron okay yeah. uh, and and yeah these models because they are they are going to the level of mechanism, right? So they are mm -hmm. basically looking at uh, okay, what what is the effect of turning on an ion channel, uh, and um, and you can you can model that using electric circuits, in, uh, and then so they, they are model. So it is not just a uh, function fitting; it is people are looking at the mechanism underlying it and uh, putting that in terms of electric circuit uh, theory, signal propagation theory, and and modeling that and. So those models are sophisticated, but getting a single neurons model 99% right does not still tell you how to, you know, it would be the analog of getting a transistor model right and now trying to build a microprocessor. Um, and if you, if you just uh, observe, you know, if you did not understand how a microprocessor works, uh, but you say, oh, I, have, I now can model one transistor well, and now I will just try to interconnect uh, the transistors according to whatever I could, you know, guess from the, the experiments and try to simulate it, um, then it is very unlikely that you will produce a functioning microprocessor. Um, you want to, you know, when you want to uh, produce a functioning microprocessor, you want to understand Boolean logic, how does, how do the, the gates work, all those things, and then, you know, understand how do those gates get implemented using transistors. Yeah, uh, there's actually, I remember, this reminds me, there's a paper, maybe you're familiar with it, that I remember going through in a reading group that approaches a microprocessor from a perspective of a neuroscientist. Yeah. I think it, it basically, it uh, uses all the tools that we have of neuroscience to try to understand, like as if we just aliens showed up to study computers. Uh, yeah. And, and to see if, if those tools can be used to get any kind of sense of how the microprocessor works. And I think the final, the takeaway from the, at least this initial uh, exploration is that <laughs> we're screwed. There's no way that the tools of neuroscience would be able to get us to anything, like not even Boolean logic. I mean, it's just a, a, any aspect of the architecture of the uh, function of the processes involved, uh, the the clocks, the, the timing, all that, you can't figure that out from the tools of neuroscience. Yeah, so I'm very familiar with this this particular paper. Yeah. Uh, I think it was uh, called, um, Can uh, a Neuroscientist Understand a Microprocessor? Or yeah. Something like that. F following the methodology in that paper, 
even an electrical engineer would not understand microprocessors so i could so, <laughs> so i so I, i don't think it is that bad in the sense of saying um neuroscientists do find valuable things uh by observing the brain um they they do find good insights um but those insights cannot be put together just as a simulation you have to you have to investigate what are the computational underpinnings pinnings of those findings how do do all of them fit together from an information processing perspective you have to you have to somebody has to uh painstakingly put those things together and build hypothesis um so i don't want to this all of neuroscience is saying oh they are not finding anything no that uh, you know that uh, that paper almost went to that level of uh, uh neuroscientists will never understand uh, no that that's not true i think they do find lots of useful things but it has to be put together in a in a computational framework yeah i mean but you know just the ai systems will be listening to this podcast a uh, 100 years from now and they will probably there's there's some non-zero probability they'll find your words laughable. There's like I remember human, <laughs> humans thought they understood something about the brain they were totally clueless. There's a sense about neuroscience that we may be in the very very early days of understanding uh the brain. But I mean that's one perspective. I mean in your perspective how far are we into understanding uh any aspect of the brain so the 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 dynamics of the individual neuron communication to the how when they in in a collective sense how they're able to store information transfer information how the intelligence then emerges all that kind of stuff where, where are we on that timeline yeah so you know timelines are very very hard to predict and you can <laughs> of course be wrong uh and it can be wrong in on either side uh you know we know that uh you know when we look back uh the first flight was yeah. in 1903 uh in 1900 there was a new york times article on flying machines that do not fly and uh, and you know humans might not fly for another 100 years that was what that article uh, stated and uh, so but no they they flew 3 years after that so it is you know it's very hard to um so well and on that point one of the right brothers uh i think 2 years before uh said that uh like he said like some number like 50 years he he has become convinced that it's it's uh it's impossible even during their experimentation yeah yeah, yeah, during, yeah, yeah. i mean that's attributed to when it, yeah, that's like the entrepreneurial battle of like depression of going through just like thinking right. there's this is impossible right. but there yeah there's something even the person that's in it is not able right. to see uh estimate correctly exactly but i can i can tell from the point of you know objectively what are the things that we know about the brain and how that can be used to build ai models which can then go back and inform how the brain works um so my way of understanding the brain would be to basically say look at the insights neuroscientists have found understand that from uh a computational angle information processing angle build models using that and then building the that model which which functions which, you know, which is a functional model which is which is doing the task that we want the model to do it is not just trying to model a phenomena in the brain it is it is trying to do what the brain is trying to do on the, on the whole uh functional level and building that model will help you fill in the missing pieces 
that you know biology just gives you the hints and building the model you know fills in the rest of the the pieces of the puzzle and then you can go and connect that back to biology and say okay now it makes sense that this part of uh, the brain is uh, doing this or this layer in the cortical circuit is doing this uh, and 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 then continue this iteratively because now that will inform new experiments in neuroscience and of course you know building the model and verifying that in the real world will you will also tell you more about does the model actually work uh, and you can refine the model find better ways of putting these neuroscience insights together mm-hmm. so so i would say it is it is you know it so neuroscientists alone just from experimentation will not be able to build a model of the of the brain uh, or a functional model of the brain so we you know there there's uh, lots of efforts which are very impressive efforts in collecting more and more connectivity data from the brain uh, you know how how are the microcircuits of the brain connected with each other those are beautiful by the way those are beautiful uh, <laughs> and at the same time those those do not itself um, by themselves convey the story of how does it work yeah uh, and and somebody has to understand okay why are they connected like that and what what are those things doing mm-hmm. uh, and and we do that by building models in ai using hints from neuroscience and and repeat the cycle so what aspect of the brain are useful in this whole endeavor which by the way i should say you're you're both a neuroscientist and an ai person i guess the dream is to both understand the brain and to build agi systems so you're it's like an engineer's perspective of trying to understand the brain so what aspects of the brain uh functionally speaking like you said do you find interesting yeah quite a lot of things all right so one is um you know if you look at the visual cortex um uh, and and you know the, the uh, visual cortex is is a large part of the brain uh, i forgot the ex- exact fraction but it is it's a it's a huge part of our brain area is uh, occupied by just just vision um so vision visual cortex is not just a feed forward cascade of neurons um uh there are a lot more feedback connections in the brain compared to the feed forward connections and and it is surprising to the level of detail neuroscientists have actually studied this if you if you go into neuroscience literature and poke around and ask you know have they studied what will be the effect of poking a neuron in uh level it uh in level v1 and uh, um have they studied that uh and you will say Yes, they have studied that. <laughs> so every po- every possible combination. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's not a random exploration at all. It's a very hypothesis driven, right? Like yeah. they they are very uh, experimental neuroscientists are very very systematic in how they probe the brain. Yeah. Uh because experiments are very costly to conduct. They take a lot of preparation. They they need a lot of control. So they they are very hypothesis driven in yeah. how they probe the brain. And um often what I find is that when we have a question in um in ai uh, about have has anybody probed uh, probed how lateral connections in the brain works and when you go and read the literature yes people have probed it and people have probed it very systematically and and they have hypotheses about how those lateral connections are supposedly contributing mm-hmm. to visual processing uh but of course they haven't built very very functional detailed models of it by the way how do the, you know studies sorry to interrupt uh, do they 
Do they stimulate like a neuron in one particular area of the visual cortex and then see how the travel or the signal travels kind of thing? Fascinating, very, very fascinating experiments. Like, you know, so I can, I can give you one example I was impressed with. Um, this is, uh, so before going to that, let me, like, let me give you, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, overview of how the, the layers in the cortex are organized, sure, right? Sure. Uh, visual cortex is organized into roughly four hierarchical levels. Okay, so uh, V1, V2, V4, IT. And in V1... What happened to V3? Uh, well, yeah, there's another pathway. Uh, okay, okay right. so there's this is this. I'm I'm talking about just the object recognition pathway. All right, okay. cool. Uh, right. And then um, in V1 itself, um, it, so it's there is a very detailed microcircuit in V1 itself. There is there is organization within a level itself. Um, the cortical sheet is organized into uh, you know multiple layers, and there are columnar structure. And and this this layer-wise and columnar structure is repeated in V1, V2, V4, uh, uh, IT, all of them, right? Uh, and and the connections between these layers within a level, with, you know, in V1 itself there are six layers roughly, and the connections between them there is a particular structure to them. Uh, and um, now, so one example of uh, an experiment uh, uh, people did is. When I when you present a stimulus uh, which is um, let's say requires um, separating the foreground from the background of an object, so mm -hmm. it is a, it's a textured triangle on a textured background, uh, and um, you can check does the surface settle first or does the contour settle first? Settle. Settle in the sense that the so when you find. Finally, form the percept of the of the uh, triangle. Mm -hmm. You understand where the contours of the triangle are, and you also know where the inside of the triangle is. Right. That's when you form the final percept. Um, now, you can ask, what is the dynamics of forming that final percept? Mm -hmm. um, do the uh, do the neurons um, first find the edges and converge on where the edges are, mm -hmm. and then they find the inner surfaces, or does it go the other way? The other way around. around. Uh, so, so what's the answer? Uh, in this case, it it turns out that it find, first settles on the edges. It it converges on the edge hypothesis first, and then the the surfaces are filled in from the edges to the inside. That's fascinating. Uh, and and the detail to which you can study this, it's it's amazing that you can actually not only find. Um, the temporal dynamics of when this happens, uh, uh, and then you can also find which layer in the you know in V one, which layer is encoding uh, the edges, which layer is encoding the surfaces, and um, which layer is encoding the feedback, which layer is encoding the feed forward, and what what's the combination of them that produces the final person. Mm -hmm. um, and these kinds of experiments stand out when you try to explain illusions. Uh, one one example of a favorite illusion of mine is the Kanitsa triangle. I don't know whether you are familiar with this one. So this is um, uh, this is an example where it's a triangle, uh, but you know the, the corners of the only the corners of the triangle are shown in the stimuli stimulus. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they look like kind of Pac-Man. Um, oh, the, the black Pac-Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then and you start to see your visual system hallucinates the edges. Yeah. Um, and you can you you know you when you look at it you will see a faint edge, right? Yeah. And you can go inside the brain and look, you know, do actually neurons signal the presence of this edge? And and if they signal, how do they do it? Because they are not receiving anything from the input. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. In the, the input is blank for those neurons, right? Yeah. Uh, so how do they signal it? When does the signaling happen? You know, does it, you know, so, so if a real contour is present in the input, then the, sig- the neurons immediately signal, oh, okay, there is, a, there is an edge here. When, when it is an illusory edge, um, it is clearly not in the input. Mm-hmm. It is coming from the context. Mm-hmm. So those neurons fire later. And, and you can say that, okay, these are, it's the feedback connections that is causing them to fire. Uh, and, and they happen later. And you can f- uh, find the dynamics of them. Oh, so, so these studies are pretty impressive and, and very detailed. So, by the way, just a uh, step back. You said yeah. uh, that there may be more feedback connections than feedforward connections. Yeah. Uh, first of all, if it's just for like a machine learning folks, yeah, I mean that for, that's crazy that there's all these feedback connections. I mean, we often think about uh, thank thanks to deep learning, you you start to think about um, the the human brain as a kind of feed forward mechanism. Right. Uh, so what the heck are these feedback connections? Yeah. yeah. What, what's their di- what's the dynamics? Well, what are we supposed to think about them? Yeah. So this is this fits into a very beautiful picture about how the brain works, right? Um, so the the beautiful picture of how the brain works is that our brain is building a model of the world. Uh, I know. So our visual system is building a model of how objects behave in the world. And, and we are constantly projecting that model back onto the world. So what we are seeing is not just a feed-forward thing that just gets interpreted in, in a feed-forward mm-hmm. part. It, we are constantly projecting our expectations onto the world. And and what the final percept is a combination of what we project onto the world uh, combined with what the actual sensory input is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Almost like trying to calculate the difference and then trying to interpret the difference. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I wouldn't put it as calculating the difference. It's more like what is the best explanation for the, the input stimulus based on the model of the world I have. Got it. Got it, and that's where all the illusions come in, and that's but that's that's an incredibly efficient, so uh, efficient process. So the feedback mechanism it just helps you constantly, uh, yeah. So hallucinate how the world should be based on your world model, exactly. and then just looking at uh, if there's novelty, uh, like trying to explain it. Like yeah. that, hence that's why movement. We detect movement really well. There's all these kinds of things, and that, this is like at all different levels of the cortex you're saying that Every, this happens at the lowest level at exactly. the highest level yes yeah in fact feedback connections are more prevalent in everywhere in the cortex and and um so one way to think about it and there's a lot of evidence for this is inference um so you know so basically if you have a model of the world and when when some evidence comes in what you are doing is inference right mm-hmm. you are trying to now explain this evidence using your model of the world. Yep. And this inference includes projecting your model onto the evidence and uh, taking the evidence uh, back into the model and, and doing an iterative procedure. Um, and uh, this iterative procedure is what happens using the feed-forward feedback propagation. Uh, and feedback affects what you see in the world and you know, it also affects feed-forward propagation. And examples are... Everywhere we we see these kinds of things everywhere. The idea that there can be multiple competing hypotheses uh, in our model 
trying to explain the same evidence. And then you have to kind of make them compete. And one hypothesis will explain away the other hypothesis through this competition process. Wait, wait, what? So you have competing models of the world that try to explain. What do you mean by explain away? So this is a classic example in uh, uh, graphical models, probabilistic models. Um, so if you... Uh, what are those? Um, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's useful to mention because we'll talk about them more. Yeah, yeah. So neural networks are one class of machine learning models. Um, you know, you have distributed set of uh, nodes, which are called the neurons. You know, each one is doing a dot product and you can you can approximate any function using this. A multi-level network of neurons. So that's a, a, a class of models which are used for, useful for function approximation. There is another class of models in machine learning uh, called probabilistic graphical models. And you can think of them as each node in that model is variable, which is, which is talking about something. You know, it can be a variable representing is, is an edge present in the input or not. Uh, and at the top of the uh, uh, network, a node can be uh, representing, is there an object present in the uh, world or not? And, and then, so it can, it is, it is another way of encoding knowledge. And, uh, um, and then you, once you encode the knowledge, you can uh, do inference in the right way. You know, how, what is the best way to, uh, you know, explain some set of evidence using this model that you encoded, you know. So when you encode the model, you are encoding the relationship between these different variables. How is the edge connected to my, uh, the model of the object? How is the surface connected to the model of the object? Um, and then, um, of course, this is a very distributed, complicated model. And inference is, how do you explain a piece of evidence when, when a set of stimulus comes in? If somebody tells me, there is a 50% probability that there is an edge here in this part of the model. How does that affect my belief on whether I should think that there should be a, is a square present in the image? Mm -hmm. so, so this is the process of inference. So one example of inference is having this explaining away effect between multiple causes. So uh, graphical models can be used to represent causality in the world. Um, so let's say, um, you know, uh, your uh, alarm uh, the, uh, at home can be uh, triggered by a, a burglar getting into your house, uh, or it can be triggered by an earthquake. Yeah. Both both can be causes of the alarm going off. So now you you are you know you are in your office. You heard burglar alarm going off. You are heading uh, home, uh, thinking that there's a burglar. Got it. Mm -hmm. But while driving home, if you hear on the radio that there was an earthquake in the vicinity, now your you know, uh, strength of evidence for uh, a burglar getting into their house is diminished. Mm -hmm. Because now that, that piece of evidence is explained by the earthquake being present. So if you, if you think about these two causes explaining at lower level uh, variable, which is alarm, now what we're seeing is that increasing the evidence for some cause you know, there is evidence coming in from below for alarm being present. And initially it was flowing to a burglar being present. But now, since somebody, some this there is side evidence for this other cause, it explains away this evidence and it, evidence will now flow to the other cause. This is, you know, two competing causal uh, things trying to explain the same evidence. 
and the brain has a similar kind of mechanism yes. for, uh, for doing so. Yes. That's kind of interesting. I mean, and that, how's that all encoded in the brain? Like, where's the storage of information? Are we talking just maybe to get it uh, a little bit more specific? Is it in the hardware of the actual connections? Is it in uh, chemical communication? Is it electrical communication? Do we, do we know? So, so this is you know a, a paper that we are bringing out soon. Which one uh, is this? Um, this is the cortical microcircuits paper that uh, I sent you a draft of. Of course, this is uh, a lot of it is still hypothesis. One hypothesis is that a, you can think of a cortical column as encoding a a concept. A concept, you know, think of it as a uh, a um, con- an example of a concept is um, is an edge present or not, or is is an object present or not? Okay, so it can you can think of it as a binary variable, a binary random variable, the presence of an edge or not, or the presence of an object or not. So each cortical column can be thought of as representing that one concept, one variable, and then the connections between these cortical columns are basically encoding the relationship between these random variables, mm-hmm. and then there are connections within the cortical column. There are each cortical column is implemented using multiple layers of neurons. Mm-hmm. With very 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 rich um, structure there, you know there are thousands of neurons in a cortical column. But and, but that structure is similar across the different cortical columns. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And also these cortical columns collect, connect to a substructure called thalamus. In the uh, you know so all all cortical columns pass through this substructure. So our hypothesis is that yeah the connections between the cortical columns implement this uh, you know th- that's where the knowledge is stored about you know how these different concepts concepts connect to each other and then the the neurons inside this cortical column and in the thalamus in combination implement this uh, actual computations needed for inference which includes explaining away and competing between the different uh, hypotheses um, and it is all very so what is amazing is that uh, neuroscientists have actually done ex- experiments to the tune of showing these things. Uh, they might not be putting it in the overall inference framework, but they will show things like, if I poke this higher level neuron, uh, it will inhibit through this complicated loop through the thalamus, it will inhibit this other column. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they will, they will do such experiments. <laughs> but do they use terminology of concepts, for example? So, so you're, no. you're, I mean, uh, is, it, uh, is it something where it's easy to anthropomorphize and think about concepts like uh, you start moving into logic-based kind of reasoning systems. So um, are we to think of concepts in that kind of way? Or is it uh, is it a lot messier, a lot more gray area? Uh, you know, even, even more gray, even more messy than uh, the artificial neural network kinds, um, kinds of abstractions. It's easiest way to think of it as a variable. Right, it's a binary variable, hmm. which is showing the presence or absence of something. S- some, but I guess what I'm asking is, is that something uh, that we're supposed to think of something that's human interpretable of that something? It doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be human interpretable. There is no need for it to be human interpretable. Uh, but it's it's almost like um, you you will be able to find some interpretation of it uh, because. It is connected to the other things yeah, so that you know about, and the the point is it's useful somehow. Yeah, it's useful as an entity 
in the graph that in connecting to the other entities that are let's call them concepts right okay so uh by the way what's are these the cortical microcircuits correct these are the cortical microcircuits you know that's what neuroscientists use to talk about the circuits in in uh within a level of the cortex so you can think of you know let's think of a neural network you know artificial neural network terms you know people talk about the architecture of the you know so how many how many layers they build uh, you know what is the fan in fan out etc that is the macro architecture mm-hmm. um, so and then within a layer of the neural network you can it, it, you know the cortical neural network is much more structured within you know within a level there is a lot more intricate uh, structure there uh, but even um, even within an artificial neural network you can think of in feature detection plus pooling as one mm-hmm. one level and so that is kind of a microcircuit uh it, it's much more uh complex in the real brain uh and uh, and so within a level whatever is that circuitry within a column of the cortex and between the layers of the cortex that's the microcircuitry yeah, i love that terminology uh machine learning people don't use the circuit terminology right but they should it's a, it's a nice so okay uh okay so that's uh that that's the the, the cortical microcircuit so what's interesting about uh what what can we say what is the paper that uh you're working on uh propose about the ideas around these cortical microcircuits so this is a fully functional model for the microcircuits of the visual cortex so the the paper focuses and your idea in our discussions now is focusing on vision yeah the uh visual cortex okay yeah, so this is a model this is a full model this is this, this is how vision works uh, th- well this is This is a, a yeah, model of yeah. A so, hypothesis. Okay, so let me let me step back uh, a bit. Um, so we looked at neuroscience for insights on how to build a vision model, right? And 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 we synthesized all those insights into a computational model. This is called the recursive cortical network model that we we used for breaking captchas and uh, and we are using the same model for robotic picking and. Uh, uh tracking of objects and that again is a vision system that's a vision Com- system computer vision system that's a computer vision system takes in images and outputs what on one side it outputs the class of the image uh and also segments the image uh and you can also ask it further queries where is the edge of the object where is the interior of the object so it. so it's a, it's a model that you build to answer multiple questions so you are not trying to build a model for just classification or just segmentation etc it's a, it's a it's a it's a joint model that can do multiple things um and um so so that's the model that we built using insights from neuroscience and some of those insights are what is the role of feedback connections what is the role of lateral connections uh, so all those things went into the model the, the model actually uses feedback connections all these ideas from your from your sense yeah. uh so what 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 the heck is a, a recursive cortical network like what what are the architecture approaches interesting aspects here which is essentially a brain inspired approach to a computer vision yeah so there are multiple layers to this question i can go from the very very top and then zoom in okay mm. so one important thing constraint that went into the model is that you should not think vision think of vision as something in isolation we should not think perception as something as a preprocessor for cognition mm-hmm. perception and cognition are interconnected and so you should not think of one problem in separation from the other problem um and so that means 
if you finally want to have a system that understand concepts uh, about the world and can learn a you know very conceptual model of the world and can reason and connect to language all of those things you need to you need to have think all the way through and make sure that your perception system is compatible with your cognition system and language system and all of them and one aspect of that is top down controllability um what does that mean so that means you know so so think of you know you can close your eyes and think about the details of one object right i can i can zoom in further and further i can mm-hmm. you know so so think of the bottle in front of me right mm-hmm. and and now you can think about okay what the cap of that bottle looks uh you know you can think about what's the texture on that bottle of the uh, the cap you know you can think about you know what will happen if uh, something hits that uh so you can you can you can manipulate your visual knowledge in uh cognition driven ways yes uh and so this top down controllability uh and being uh-huh. able to simulate scenarios in the world so you're not just a passive uh player in this perception game you you can correct. you can control it you can correct. you you have imagination correct correct so 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 basically you know basically having a generative network yeah. uh, which is a model and and it is not just some arbitrary generative network it has to be it has to be built in a way that it is controllable top down mm-hmm. it is it is not just trying to generate a whole picture at once uh you know it's not trying to generate photorealistic things of the world you you know you don't have good photorealistic models of the world human brains do not have if i if i for example ask you the question uh what is the color of the letter e in the google logo you have no idea no idea <laughs> although you have seen it millions of times th- <laughs> or not th- millions of times hundreds of times <laughs> so yeah. uh, so it's not our model is not photorealistic but but it is but it has other properties that we can manipulate it uh, in the uh, and you can think about filling in a different color in that logo you can think about expanding the the letter e yeah. uh, you know you, you can see what in so you can imagine the consequence of you know actions that you have never performed so so these are the kind of characteristics the generative model need to have so this is one constraint that went into our model like you know so this is when you read the just the perception side of the paper it is not obvious that this was a constraint into the into, that went into the model this top down controllability of the generative model uh so what what is uh, top down controllability in a model look like it's a really interesting concept fascinating concept yeah. what is that is that the recursive recursiveness gives you that or how, how do you how it's, do you do it? um quite a few things it's like what what does the model factor uh, factorize you know what are the what is the model representing as different pieces in the puzzle like you know so right. so in the rcn uh network it it thinks of the world you know so for example the background of an image is modeled separately from the foreground of the image so it. so the the objects are separate from the background they are different entities so there's a kind of segmentation that's built in fundamentally Correct. into the and, and and then even that object is composed of parts and also and another one is the the shape of the object uh, is differently modeled from the texture of the object got it so there's like these um uh, i've been you know who francois chalet is Yeah uh, yeah so, so there's uh he he developed this like IQ test type of thing for right. arc challenge for and uh it's kind of cool that there's um these concepts priors that he defines that you bring to the table 
in order to be able to reason about basic shapes and things in an IQ test. Right. So here you're making it qu quite explicit that here here are the things that you should be, the, these are like distinct things that you should be able to uh, model in yeah. this. Keep in mind that you you can derive this from much more general principles. It doesn't, you don't need to explicitly put it as, oh, objects versus foreground versus background, uh, the surface versus texture. No, these are, these are derivable from uh, more fundamental principles of how, you know, what's the property of continuity of natural signals? What's the property of continuity of natural signals? Yeah. By the way, that sounds very poetic, but yeah. Uh, so you're saying that's a, there's some low level properties from which emerges the idea that shapes should be different than exactly. like uh, there should be a parts of an object. There should be, I mean, exactly. kind of like Francois talked, I mean, there's objectness. There's all yeah. these things that it's kind of crazy that we humans, uh, I guess, evolved to have because it's useful for Correct. us to perceive the world. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And it, it derives mostly from the properties of natural signals. And, yeah. and so, um, natural signals. So natural signals are the kind of things we'll perceive in the in the natural world. Correct. I don't know. I don't. I don't know why that sounds so beautiful. Natural signals. Yeah. As opposed to a QR code, right? Which is an artificial oh. signal that we created. Humans are not very good at classifying QR codes. We are very good at saying whether something is a cat or a dog, yeah. but not very good at you know classifying. Whereas computers are very good at classifying QR codes. Um, so our our visual system is tuned for natural signals. Uh, and there are fundamental assumptions in the architecture that are derived from natural signals uh, properties. I wonder when you take uh, hallucinogenic drugs, does that go into natural <laughs> or is that closer to the QR code? Uh, it's That's still whole, natural. It's, it's still natural? Yeah, yeah. because it's, it, it is still operating using your brains. By the way, on that, on that topic, I, I mean, I haven't been following. I think they're becoming legalized in certain, I can't wait until they become legalized to a degree that you like vision science researchers could study it. Yeah. Just like through through medical chemical ways modify. There could be ethical concerns, but modify that's another way to study the brain is to be be able to chemically modify it. It's probably um probably very long a way to, to figure out how to do it ethically. Yeah, but, but I th I think there are studies on that already. Already? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, because you, it's you, it's you, not unethical to give uh, it to rats. So. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of <laughs> drugged up rats out there. Okay, yeah. cool. Sorry, sorry to. So okay, so there's uh, so there's these uh, low level uh, things from natural signals that. Uh, that that uh, that can from which these properties will emerge. Yes, uh, but it is still a very hard problem on how to encode that. You know, so you don't. You know, there is no. Uh, so uh, you mentioned um, the 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 priors uh, Francho wanted to encode in uh, in the uh, abstract reasoning challenge, but mm. it is not straightforward how to encode those priors. Um, so, so some of those uh, challenges, like you know, the object rec or, or completion challenges, are things that we purely use our visual system to do. It is, uh, it looks like abstract reasoning, but it is purely an output of a, the the vision system. For example, completing the corners of that Kanitsa triangle, completing the lines of that Kanitsa triangle. It's a purely a visual system property. It, you know, it's there is no abstract reasoning involved. It it uses all these priors, but it is stored in our visual system in a particular way that is amenable to inference. And, and 
And that is one of the things that we tackled in the, you know, basically saying, okay, these are the prior knowledge uh, which which will be derived from the world. But then how is that prior knowledge represented in the model such that inference when, when some piece of evidence comes in can be done very efficiently and in a very distributed way. Um, because it is very, there are so many ways of representing knowledge which is not amenable to very quick inference you know, quick lookups. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's one um, core part of what we tackled in uh, the RCN model. Um, uh, how do you encode visual knowledge to uh, do very quick inference? And yeah. Can you maybe comment on, uh, so folks listening to this and in general may be familiar with different kinds of architectures of neural networks. What what are we talking about with the RCN? Uh, what are, what does the architecture look like? What are the different components? Is it close to neural networks? Is it far away from neural networks? What does it look like? Yeah, so so you can uh, think of the delta between the model and a convolutional neural network if if people are familiar with convolutional neural networks. So convolutional neural networks have this feedforward processing cascade, which is called uh, feature detectors and pooling, and that is repeated in the in the hierarchy in in a a multi-level uh, system, um, and if you if you want to an intuitive idea of what what is happening, feature detectors are uh, you know detecting interesting co-occurrences in the input. Mm-hmm. It can be a line, a corner, a, a an eye, or a piece of texture, etc. And the, the pooling neurons are doing some local transformation of that and making it invariant to local transformations. So this is what the structure of convolutional neural network is. Um, recursive cortical network has a similar structure when you look at just the feedforward pathway. But in addition to that, it is also structured in a way that it is generative so that it can, it can run it backward and combine the forward with the backward. Mm-hmm. Another aspect that it has is it has lateral connections. These lateral connections um, which is bet- between, so if you have an edge here and an edge here, it has connections between these edges. It is not just feedforward connections. It is um, something between these edges, which is uh, the, the nodes representing these edges, which is to enforce compatibility between them. So otherwise what will happen is like that- constraints? It's a constraint. It's basically, if you, if you do just feature detection followed by pooling, then your, your transformations in different parts of the visual field are not coordinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can you will create uh, jagged when you when you generate from the model you will create jagged um, uh, things and uncoordinated transformations. So these lateral connections are enforcing the the transformations. Is the whole thing still differentiable? Uh, no. Okay. No. no. <laughs> it's not. It's not trained using uh, backprop. Okay, that's really important. So yeah. uh, so there's these feed forward. There's feedback mechanisms. There's some interesting connectivity things. It's still layered, like uh, yes, there uh, are multiple levels, yes. mul- multiple uh, layers. Okay, very, very interesting. Uh, and yeah, okay. So the interconnection between um, adjacent so connections across service constraints yeah. that that keep the thing stable. Got it. Uh, okay, so w- what else? Uh, and then there's this idea of doing inference. A, a neural network does not do inference on the fly. So an example of why this inference is important is, you know, so one of the first applications uh, that we showed in the paper was to crack uh, text-based CAPTCHAs. 
What are captchas, by the way? Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> by the way, one of the most awesome, like I, the people don't use this term anymore. It's human computation, I think. Uh, I love this term. The guy who created captchas, I think, came up with this term. Yeah, I love it. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what what are captchas? So captchas are those strings that you fill in uh, when you're, you know, when if you're opening a new account in Google. They show you a picture, a, you know, usually it used to be set of garbled letters uh, that you have to kind of uh, figure out what 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 is that string of characters and type in. Mm -hmm. And the reason CAPTCHAs exist is because, you know, um, Google or Twitter do not want automatic creation of accounts. You can use a computer to create millions of accounts uh, and uh, use that for in nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want to make sure that to the extent possible, the interaction that you know, their system is having is with a human. So it's a it's called a human interaction proof. A CAPTCHA mm -hmm. is a human interaction proof. Yeah. Um, so, so this is, a CAPTCHAs are by design things that are easy for humans to solve, but hard for computers. Hard for robots, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and text-based CAPTCHAs was the one which is prevalent until around 2014. Because at that time, text-based CAPTCHAs were hard for computers to crack. Even now, they are actually, in the sense of an arbitrary text-based CAPTCHA will be unsolvable even now. But with the techniques that we have developed, it can be, you know, you can quickly develop a mechanism that solves uh, the CAPTCHA. Uh, well, they, they've probably gotten a lot harder too. The people they, 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 they've been getting clever and clever at generating these text CAPTCHAs. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. So okay, so that was one of the things you've tested it on is these kinds of CAPTCHAs in yeah. 2014, 15, Correct. that kind of stuff. Right. Right. So what? Uh, wh I mean, why? By the way, why CAPTCHAs? Why? Yeah. Yeah. Even now, I would say CAPTCHA is a very, very good challenge problem. Uh, if you want to understand how human perception works and if you want to build uh, systems that work like the human brain. Uh, and I wouldn't say CAPTCHA is a solved problem. We have cracked the fundamental defense of CAPTCHAs, but it is not solved in the way that humans solve it. Um, so I can give you an example. I can um, take a five-year-old child who has just learned characters uh, and uh, show them any new CAPTCHA that we create. Mm -hmm. they will be able to solve it. Uh, I can show you pretty much any new CAPTCHA uh, from any new website. You'll be able to solve it without getting any training examples from that particular style of yeah. CAPTCHA. You're assuming I'm human, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right. <laughs> so if you are human, yeah. if you, otherwise I will be able to figure that out <laughs> yeah, <well. laughs> using this one. <laughs> but uh, this, this whole podcast is just a Turing test, that's a, long, right. a long Turing test. Anyway, I'm sorry. So yeah, uh, so human humans can figure it out with very few examples, or no training examples, no like training. no training examples from that particular style of captcha. Yeah. Um, and and so you can you know so uh, even now this is unreachable for uh, the current deep learning system. So basically, there is no. I, I don't think a system exists where you can basically say train on whatever you want, and then now say, hey, I will show you a new captcha which I did not show you in in the in the training setup. Will the system be able to solve it? Um, it? Still doesn't exist. So that is the magic of human perception. Yeah. And Doug Hofstadter uh, put this uh, very beautifully in uh, one of his uh, talks. The the central problem in AI is what is the letter A? Mm -hmm. If you can if you can build a system that reliably 
can detect all the variations of the letter a you don't even need to go to the <laughs> the, the b and the c yeah. yeah you don't even know to go to the b and the c or the strings of characters and uh so that that is the spirit at which you know with which we uh, tackle that problem well, what does it mean by that i mean is is it uh it's like w- without training examples try to figure out the fundamental uh, elements that make up the letter a in all of its forms in all of its forms it can be a can be made with two humans standing leaning against each other holding the hands yeah. uh, and uh it can be made of leaves it can be yeah you might have to understand uh everything about this world in order to understand the letter a exactly. yeah exactly so, so it's common sense reasoning essentially right, yeah right, right so so to finally to really solve finally to say that we have solved captcha uh you have to solve the whole problem <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, what? How does uh, this kind of the RCN architecture help us to get uh, do a better job of that kind of yeah. thing? Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned, one of the important things was being able to do inference, being able to dynamically do inference. Uh, can you can you uh, can, can you uh, clarify what you mean? Because because you said like neural networks don't do inference. Yeah. So, what do you mean by inference in this context? Then. So okay. So in captures, what they do to confuse people is to make these characters crowd together. Yes. Okay. And when you make the characters crowd together, what happens is that you will now start seeing combinations of characters as some other new character mm-hmm. or or an existing character. So you would you would put an R and N together, it will start looking like an M. Mm-hmm. Uh and and so locally they are, you know th- th- there is very strong evidence for it being uh some uh incorrect character. But globally the only explanation that fits together is something that is different from what you can find locally yes so 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 this is inference you are basically taking uh local evidence and putting it in the global context and often coming to a conclusion locally which is conflicting with the local information so actually so you mean inference like uh in the way it's used when you talk about reasoning for example Correct. Uh, as opposed to like inference which is a with neural, with artificial neural networks which is a single pass to the network correct okay correct. Correct. so like you you're basically doing some basic forms of reasoning correct. like integration of like uh how local things fit into the the global right. picture and, and and things like explaining away coming into this one because you are you are uh explaining that piece of evidence uh as something else uh because globally that's the only thing that makes sense um yeah. so now Yeah, uh, you can amortize this inference by you know in a neural network. If you want to do this, what you the, you can you can brute force it. You can just show it all combinations of things uh, yeah. that you want to you want to uh, your reasoning to work over, mm-hmm. and you can you know like just train the hell out of that neural network, and it will look like it is doing uh you know inference on the fly, but it is it is really just doing amortized inference. It is because you you have shown it. a lot of these combinations during training time mm-hmm. um so what you want to do is be able to do dynamic inference rather than just being able to show all those combinations in the training time and that's something we emphasized in the model what does it mean dynamic inference is that that has to do with the feedback thing yes like what what is dynamic I mean, I, i'm trying to visualize what dynamic inference would be in this case like what is it doing with the input it's shown the input the first time Yeah. and is is like what's changing over temporally 
over time? What's the dynamics of this inference process? So, so you can think of it as you have um, at the top of the model, the characters that you are trained on, yeah. they are the causes. They, you're trying to explain the pixels mm-hmm. using the characters as the causes. The, you know, the characters are the things that cause the pixels. Yeah, so there's this causality thing. So the reason you mentioned causality, I guess, is because there's a temporal aspect to this whole thing. In this particular case, the temporal aspect is not important. It is more like when, if if I turn the character on, the the pixels will turn on. Uh, yeah, it will be after this a little bit, but okay. Yeah. So that is causality in the sense of like a logic causality, like hence inference. Okay. Right. The dynamics is that uh, even the locally it will look like, okay, this is an A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and locally, just when I look at just that patch of the image, it looks like an A. Mm-hmm. But when I look at it in the context of all the other causes, it might not, you know, A is not the something that makes sense. So that is something you have to kind of, you know, recursively figure out. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so, uh, and uh, this thing performed pretty well on the captures. Correct. And... Uh, I mean, is there some kind of interesting intuition you can provide why it did well? Like, what did it look like? Is there visualizations that could be human interpretable to us humans? Yes. Yeah, so the, the good thing about the model is that it is extremely, um, so it is not just doing a classification, right? It is, it is, it is, it is providing a full explanation for the scene. So when, when it, when it um, operates on a scene, it is coming at back and saying, look, this is the part is the A, and these are the pixels that turned on. Uh, these are the pixels in the input that tells makes me think that it is an A, mm-hmm. and also these are the portions I hallucinated. It, it, you know, it, it it provides a complete explanation of that form, and, and then you know, so these are the contours. These are this is the interior, and this is in front of this other object. So th- that that's the kind of um, explanation it um, the the inference network provides. So so that that is useful and interpretable, um, and uh, um, then the kind of errors it makes are also I don't want to um, read too much into it, but the kind of errors the network makes are uh, very similar to the kinds of errors humans would make. In a, in a similar situation. So there's something about the structure that uh, feels reminiscent of the way humans' uh, visual system works. Well, I mean, uh, how hard-coded is this to the capture problem, this idea? Uh, not really hard-coded because it's the, uh, the assumptions, as I mentioned, are general, right? It is more, um, and, and those themselves can be applied in many situations which are natural signals. Um, so it's it's the foreground versus uh, background factorization, and uh, the factorization of the surfaces versus the contours. So these are all generally applicable assumptions in in all vision. Yeah. So why why capture why attack the capture problem, which is quite unique in the computer vision context, versus like the traditional benchmarks of ImageNet and all those kinds of image classification or even segmentation tests and all that kind of stuff. Do you feel like that's, uh, I mean, what what's your thinking about those kinds of benchmarks in um, in this in this context? I mean, those benchmarks are useful for deep learning kind of algorithms where you, you know, so the, the settings uh, that deep learning works in are, here is my huge training set and here is my test set. So the, the, the training set is almost, uh, you know, 100x, 1000x bigger than 
the test set in many many cases. Uh, what we wanted to do was invert that. The training set is way smaller than the the test set. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, and you know, uh, capture is a problem that is by definition hard for computers, and it has these good properties of strong generalization, strong out of training distribution generalization. If you are interested in studying that uh, and putting uh, having your model have that property, then it's a, it's a good data set to tackle. So is there, have you attempted to, which I think, I believe there's quite a growing body of work on looking at MNIST and ImageNet without training. So like taking, like the basic challenge is how, what tiny fraction of the training set can we take in order to do a reasonable job of the right. classification task? Have right. have you explored that angle on these classic benchmarks? Yes, so so we did do MNIST. So, um, you know, so it's not just CAPTCHA. We, mm -hmm. uh, so there was uh, also uh, uh, versions of, multiple versions of MNIST, including the the standard version, which where we inverted the problem, which is basically saying, rather than train on 60,000 uh, training data, uh, you know, how uh, quickly can you get uh, to high level accuracy with very little training data? Was, is there some uh, performance that you remember, like how well, how well did it do? How many examples did it need? Yeah, it, it, I, I, like, you know, I remember that it was, you know, uh, on the order of uh, tens or hundreds of examples to get into ninety-five uh, percent accuracy, and it was it was definitely better than the systems other systems out there at that time. At that time, yeah, yeah, they're really pushing. That. I think that's a really interesting space, actually. Uh, I think there's an actual name for MNIST that uh, like there's different names for the different sizes of training sets. I mean, people are like attacking this problem. I think it's yeah. super interesting. Yeah, It's funny how like the MNIST will probably be with us all the way to AGI. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> a data set that just sticks by. It, it is, it's a clean, simple uh, data set to, uh, to study the fundamentals of learning with. Just like captures, it's interesting. Correct. Not enough people I don't know, maybe you can correct me, but I feel like CAPTCHAs don't show up as often in papers as they probably should. That's correct, yeah. Because, you know, um, usually these things have a momentum. Uh, you know, once once uh, something gets established as a standard benchmark, yeah. there, is a, there, is a, uh, there is a dynamics of uh, how graduate students operate and how uh, academic, academic system works that uh, pushes people to track that uh, benchmark. So. Yeah. To <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> nobody wants to think outside the box. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So good performance on the captures. What else is there interesting um, on the RCN side before we talk about the cortical microscope? Yeah. So the the same model. So the, the 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 important part of the model was that it trains very quickly with very little training data, and it's uh, you know quite robust to out of distribution uh, perturbations. Um, and uh, and we are using that uh, very uh, fruitfully in uh, advocacy in many of the robotic tasks we are solving. Uh, solving now. Well, let me ask you this kind of touchy question. I have to. I, I've, I've spoken with uh, your friend, colleague uh, Jeff Hawkins too. So, I mean, this. Uh, I, ha I have to kind of ask. There is a bit of whenever you have brain-inspired stuff. Yeah. And you make big claims, yeah. uh, big sexy claims. Yeah. There's a you know uh, 
there's critics. I mean, machine learning subreddit. <laughs> Don't get me started on those people. Uh, they're hard. I mean, criticism is good, but they're a bit uh, they're a bit over the top. Um, there is quite a bit of sort of skepticism and criticism. You know, is this work really as good as it promises to be? Yeah. What do you have thoughts on that kind of skepticism? Do you have comments on the kind of criticism I might have received uh, about, you know, is this approach legit? Is this is this a promising approach? Yeah. Or at least as promising as it seems to be, you know, advertised as? Yeah, I, I can comment on it. Um, so, you know, our uh, RCN paper is uh, published in Science, which I would argue is is a very high quality journal, very hard to uh, publish in. And, you sh- you know, usually it is indicative of the, of the quality of the work, and um, uh, I can, I can, I, I am very, very certain that the ideas that we brought together in that paper, uh, in terms of the importance of feedback connections, uh, recursive inference, lateral connections, uh, coming to best explanation of the scene as the problem to solve, trying to solve uh, recognition, segmentation, uh, all jointly in a way that is compatible with higher-level cognition, top-down attention, all those ideas that we brought together into something, you know, coherent and workable in the uh, in the world and solving a challenging, tackling a challenging problem, I think that will that will stay and that that contribution I stand by, right? Yeah. Now, uh, I can I can sh- uh, tell you a story uh, which is funny in the in the context of this, right? Um, so, if you read the abstract of the paper and like, you know, the argument we are putting in, you know, we are putting in, look, current deep learning systems take a lot of training data, uh, they don't use these insights. And here is our new model, which is not a deep neural network. It's a graphical model. It does inference. This is what, how the paper is, right? Now, once the paper was accepted and everything, um, it went to the press department in in science, you know, AAAS science office. We we didn't do any press release when it yeah. was published. It was it went to the press department. What did the what was the press release that they wrote up? A new deep learning model. <laughs> so, solves captures. <laughs> solves captures. And uh, so so you can see where was you know what what was being hyped uh, in that uh, thing right so so it's like um, there is the there is a dynamic in the uh, in the community of you know so uh, um, that's especially happens when there are lots of new people coming into the field and they get attracted to one thing and some people are trying to think different uh, compared to that so there is there is some uh, I, I think skepticism in science is important and it is um, you know very much. Uh, required, but it's also it's not uh, skepticism. Usually, it's mostly bandwagon effect that is happening rather than. Inf- well, well, but that's not even that. I mean, I'll tell you what they react to, which is like uh, I'm sensitive to as well. If you if you look at just companies, OpenAI, DeepMind, yeah, um, Vicarious. I mean, it just it, there's a there's a there's a little bit of a race to the top and hype, right? Right. It's it's like it doesn't pay off to be humble. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, so like, uh, and and the press is just uh, irresponsible often. They they just, I mean, don't get me started on the state of journalism today. Like, it seems like the people who write articles about these things, they literally have not even spent an hour on the Wikipedia article about what is neural networks. Like, yeah. they haven't like invested just even the language to laziness it's like uh, robots beat humans. Like they they write this kind of stuff yeah. that just uh, and then uh, and then of course the researchers are quite sensitive to that. 
because it gets a lot of attention. They're like, why did this word get so much attention? Uh, you know, that's that's over the top and people get really sensitive. You know, the same kind of criticism with uh, OpenAI did work with the Rubik's Cube with the robot that yeah. people criticized. Uh, same with GPT-2 and 3, they criticize. Uh, same thing with uh, Deep Minds with Alpha Zero. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to it, um, but... And of course, with your work, you mentioned deep learning, but there's something super sexy to the public about brain-inspired. I mean, that right. immediately grabs people's imagination, not even like neural networks, but like really brain-inspired, like, like brain-like neural networks. Right. Right. That seems really compelling to people and um, to me as well, to, to, to the world as, as a narrative. And so uh, people hook up, hook on to that and uh sometimes you uh the skepticism engine turns on in the research community and they're right. skeptical but i think putting aside the ideas of the actual performance on captures or performance on any data set i mean to me all these data sets are useless anyway it's nice to have them uh but in the grand scheme of things they're silly toy examples the point is is there intuition about the the ideas, just like you mentioned, bringing the ideas together in a unique way. Is there something there? Is there some value there? And is it going to stand the test of time? Yes. And that's the hope. That's yes. the hope. Uh, I, I'm my confidence there is very high. I, you know, I don't treat brain inspired as a marketing term. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I am lo looking into the details of biology and and puzzling over. Uh, those things and I am I am grappling with those things and so it is it is not a marketing term at all it you know you can use it as a marketing term and and people often use it and you can get combined with them and when when people don't understand how we are approaching the problem it is it is easy to be uh, misunderstood and you know think of it as you know purely uh, marketing but that's not the way uh, we are so, so you really I mean, as a scientist, you believe that if we kind of just stick to really understanding the brain, that's going to, that's the right, like you, you should constantly meditate on the, how does the brain do this? Because that's going to be really helpful for engineering intelligence systems. Yes, you need to, so I think it is, it's one input and it is, it is helpful, but you, you should know when to deviate from it. Too. Um, so an example is convolutional neural networks, right? Yeah. Uh, convolution is not an operation brain in, uh, implements. Uh, the visual cortex is not convolutional. Visual cortex has local receptive fields, local connectivity. Mm -hmm. But the you know the um, there, is, there is no translation in invariance in the um, uh, the network weights um, in in the visual cortex. That is a a computational trick, which is a very good engineering trick that we use for sharing the training between the different uh, nodes. Um, so, uh, and and that trick will be with us for some time. It will go away when we have um, uh, uh, robots with eyes and heads that move. Uh, and so then the, that trick will go away. It will not be uh, useful at that time. So, oh, so the brain doesn't, so the brain doesn't have translational invariance. It has the focal point, like it has a thing it focuses on. Correct. It has it has a fovea, and and fovea. because of the fovea, um, the the receptive fields are not like uh, the copying of the weights, like the yeah. the 
the weights in the center are very different from the weights in the periphery. Yeah, so the periphery. I mean, I, I did this, uh, actually wrote a paper and just gotten a chance to really study peripheral, peripheral vision, which is a fascinating thing. Very under understood thing of what the you know, at the every level the brain does with the periphery. It does some funky stuff. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's another kind of trick than uh, convolutional, like it does, it, it uh, it's, you know, convolution, convolution in neural networks is a trick to for efficiency, is efficiency trick. And the brain does a whole nother kind of thing, got I it, guess. Got it, so, so you need to understand the principles of processing so that you can still apply engineering tricks yeah. when, where you want it to. You don't want to be slavishly mimicking all the things of the brain. Um, and and so yeah, so it should be one input, and I think it is extremely helpful. Uh, but you, it should be the point of really understanding so that you know when to deviate from it. So okay, that's really cool. That that's work from uh, a few years ago. So you uh, you did work in Numenta with Jeff Hawkins, and, yeah, uh, with um, hierarchical temporal memory. How is your just? If you could give a brief history, how has your view of the way the models of the brain changed over the past few years leading up to to now? Is there some interesting aspects where there was an adjustment to your understanding of the brain, or is it all just building on top of each other? In terms of the higher level ideas, uh, especially the ones Jeff wrote about in the book, if you if you blur out, right, you know, you, uh, yeah, on uh, intelligence, right, on intelligence. That's... If you if you blur out the details and and if you just zoom out and at the higher level idea, uh, things are I would say consistent with what he wrote about. But but many things will be consistent with that because it is it's a blur. You know, when you when you you know deep learning systems are also you know multi level right. hierarchical, all of those things, right? So so at the but um, in terms of the detail, a lot of things are different, uh, and 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 those details matter a lot. Um, so so one point of difference I had with Jeff uh, uh, was uh, how to approach you know how much of biological plausibility and realism do you want in the learning algorithms? Mm. Um, so uh, when I was there, uh, this was you know. Almost ten years ago now, so yeah, yeah, I, I, when you're having fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what Jeff thinks now, but ten years ago, uh, the difference was that I did not want to be so constrained on saying uh, my learning algorithms want to, need to be biologically plausible uh, based on some filter of biological plausibility available at that time. To me, that is a dangerous cut to make because we are, you know, discovering more and more things about the brain all the time. New biophysical mechanisms, new channels uh, are being discovered all the time. So I don't want to upfront kill off an, uh, a learning algorithm just because we don't really understand the full uh, the full uh, the biophysics or whatever of how the brain learns. Exactly, exactly. But so, let me ask, and sorry to interrupt. Like, what's our what's your sense? What's our best understanding of how the brain learns? So things like backpropagation credit assignment. So, so many of these algorithms yeah. have, learning algorithms have things in common, right? It is, yeah, backpropagation is one way of credit assignment. There is another algorithm called expectation maximization, which is, you know, a, another weight adjustment algorithm. But is it your sense the brain does something like this? Has to. There is no way around it in the sense of saying that you do have to adjust the 
the connections. So yeah, and you're saying credit assignment, you have to reward the connections that were useful in making a correct prediction and not, yeah, I guess what up, but yeah, it doesn't have to be <laughs> differentiable. I mean <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't have to be differentiable. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to have a you know, you have a model that you start with, you you have data comes in, and you have to have a way of adjusting the model such that it better fits the data. Yeah. So that that is all of learning, right? And yeah. And some of them can be using backprop to do that. Some of it can be using, uh, you know, very local uh, graph changes to do that. Uh, there can, be, you know, uh, many of these learning algorithms have similar update properties locally, uh, in terms of what the neurons need to do locally. I wonder if small differences in learning algorithms can have huge differences in the actual effect. So the dynamics of I mean, uh, sort of the, re the reverse, like spiking, like the, uh, if, if credit assignment is like a, a, a lightning versus like a, a rainstorm or something, like whether whether there's a like a looping local type of situation with the credit assignment, yeah. uh, whether there is uh, like regularization, like how how um how it injects robustness into the whole thing like whether it's chemical or electrical or mechanical yeah uh, all those kinds of things like yes. that <laughs> i feel like it, it that yeah i feel like those differences could be essential right it could be it's just that you don't know enough to on the learning side you don't know uh, enough to say that is definitely not the way the brain right. does it Got it. Oh. So you don't want to be stuck to it. Right. So that, yeah. So you, you've you been open-minded on that side of things. Correct. On the inference side, on the recognition side, I am much more uh, amenable to being constrained because it's much easier to do experiments because, you know, it's like, okay, here's the stimulus. You know, how many steps did it get to take the answer? Right. I can trace it back. I can I can understand the speed of that computation, etc. Much more uh, readily on the inference side. Got it. And then you can't do good experiments on the learning side. Correct. So that let's let's go right into the cortical microcircuits right back. So what uh, what are these ideas beyond recursive cortical network that uh, you're looking at now? So we have made a uh, you know pass through or you know multiple of the steps that we, you know as I as I mentioned earlier you know we were looking at perception from the angle of cognition right it was not just perception for perception's sake how do you how do you connect it to cognition uh, how do you learn concepts and uh, how do you learn abstract reasoning uh, mm -hmm. similar to some of the things francois uh, uh, talked about right um, so um, so we have uh, taken one pass through it basically saying what is the basic cognitive architecture that you need to have which has a perceptual system which has a system that learns dynamics of the world mm -hmm. and then has something like a routine program learning system on top of it to learn concepts. So we have we have built one, the you know, the version point one of that system. Uh, this was another uh, science robotics paper. Uh, it is it's the title of that paper was you know something like cognitive programs. How do you build cognitive programs? Uh, and and the application there was on uh, manipulation. Robotic it, it was. It was. Um, so think of it like this. Suppose you uh, wanted to tell uh, a new person uh, that you met 
you don't know the language uh, or that person uses you want to communicate to that person uh to achieve some task mm -hmm. right so i want to say hey um you need to pick up all the the red cups from the kitchen counter and put it here mm -hmm. right uh, how do you communicate that right you can show pictures you can basically say look this is the starting state uh, the, the things are here this is the ending state and and what does the person need to understand from that the, the person need to understand what conceptually happened in those pictures from the input to the right. output right, right. Um, so um so we are looking at pre verbal conceptual understanding without language how do you how do you have a set of concepts that you can manipulate in your head uh and from a you know set of images of input and output can you infer what is happening in those images got it with concepts that are pre language okay so right. what does it mean to for a concept to be pre language like yeah why why so why why is language uh, so important here so i i want to make a distinction between concepts that are just learned from text ah. by by just just feeding brute force text uh you can you can start extracting things like okay uh cow is likely to be on grass uh, in, in, uh so those kinds of things you can extract purely from text um uh but that's kind of a simple association uh, thing rather than a concept as an abstraction of something that happens in the real world you know in a in a grounded way that i can i can simulate it in my mind and connect it back to the real world and you, and you think kind of the visual uh the visual world concepts in the visual world are somehow lower level than just the language the lower level kind of makes it feel like okay that's like an unimportant like it's more like uh i would say um the concepts in the visual and the motor system and you know the the uh the concept learning system which if you cut off the language part just the just what we learn by interacting with the world and abstractions from that that is a prerequisite for any real language understanding so you're uh so you disagree with Chomsky cuz he says language is at the bottom of everything no i i, I yeah i disagree with chomsky completely on how many levels from from universal grammar to yeah so. so that was a paper in science beyond the recursive cortical network uh what what other interesting problems are there the open problems in brain inspired uh approaches that you're thinking about i mean everything is open right like you know, no 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 problem is uh solved solved uh, right uh first uh i think of perception as kind of the f the pr the first thing that you have to build but the last thing that you will be actually solved um <laughs> so uh because if you do not build perception system in the right way you cannot build concept system in the right way um so so you have to build a perception system however wrong that might be you have to still build that and learn concepts from there and and then you know keep iterating um and and finally perception will get solved fully when perception cognition language all those things work together finally so what uh and uh, so great we've talked a lot about perception but then maybe on the concept side and like common sense or just general reasoning side yeah. is there some some uh, intuition you can draw from the brain about how we could do that so i have i have this a uh, classic example i give um um so suppose i give you a few sentences 
and then ask you a question following that sentence. This is a natural language processing problem, right? I'll, so so here the, it goes. I'm telling you, uh, Sally pounded a nail on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, that's a sentence. Mm-hmm. Now I'm asking you a question. Was the nail horizontal or vertical? Vertical. Okay, how did you answer that? Uh, well, I imagined Sally. Well, it was kind of hard to imagine what the hell she was doing, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagined I had, I had a visual of the whole situation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so here, you know, I I post a question in natural language. The answer to that question was you you got the answer from actually simulating the scene. Now I can go more and more detail about okay, was Sally stand, standing on something while doing this? You know, could could she have been uh, standing on a light bulb to do this? You know, I could I could I could ask more and more questions about this, and I can ask make you simulate the scene in scene in more and more detail, right? Where is all that knowledge that you are accessing stored? It is not in your language system. It is not. It was not just by reading text you got that knowledge. It is stored from the everyday experiences that you have had from, and and by the by the age of five you you have pretty much all of this right, and it is stored in your visual system, motor system, in a way such that it can be accessed through language. I got it. I mean, right. So your the language is just a, almost serves as a query into the whole visual cortex, and then does the whole feedback thing. But I mean, it is all reasoning kind of connected to the perception system in some way you can do a lot of it you know you can still um do a lot of it by quick associations without having to go into the depth and and most of the time you will be right right uh, you can just do quick associations but i can easily create tricky situations for you where that quick associations is wrong and you have to actually run the simulation so the figuring out the how these concepts connect um, do we have a good idea of how to do that? That's exactly what. That, you know, that's the one of the problems that we are working on, and 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 the uh, the way we are approaching that is basically saying, okay, you need to. So the the uh, the takeaway is that language is simulation control, and your perceptual plus uh, motor system is building a simulation of the world, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so so that's basically the way we are approaching it, and. The first thing that we built was a controllable perceptual system, and uh, we built a schema networks, which was a controllable dynamic system. Then we built a concept learning system that puts all these things together into uh, programs as abstractions that you can run and simulate. Uh, and now we are taking the step of connecting it to language. And uh, and uh, it will be very simple examples initially. It will not be the GPT three like examples, but it will be grounded simulation based language. And for like the the querying would be like question answering kind of thing. Correct, correct. And it will be in some simple world initially, on you know. Uh, I, but it will be about okay, can the system connect the language and uh, ground it in the right way and run the right simulations to come and, up with the answer. And the goal is to try to do things that, for example, GPT three couldn't do. Correct. Speaking of which, if we could. Uh, talk about GPT-3 a little bit. I think it's an interesting, thought-provoking set of ideas that OpenAI is pushing forward. I think it's good for us to talk about the limits and the possibilities in neural networks. So in general, what are your thoughts about this recently released 
very large 175 billion parameter language model. So I have I haven't uh, directly evaluated it yet. From what I have seen on Twitter and uh, you know other people evaluating it, it looks very intriguing. You know I am I am very intrigued by some of the properties it is displaying and uh, and of course the text generation uh, part of that was already evident in GPT two. You know that it can generate coherent text over uh, uh, long distances. That was, uh, but of course the weaknesses are also pretty visible in saying that, okay, it is not really carrying a world state around. Um, and, you know, sometimes you get sentences like, I went up the hill to reach the valley or thing. You know, like yeah. Some, you know, completely incompatible statements. Or when you're traveling from one place to the other, it doesn't take into account the time of travel, things like that. So those things, I think, will happen less in GPT-3 because it is trained on even more data and uh, so and it has it can do even more longer distance uh, uh coherence um but it will still have the fundamental limitations that it doesn't have a world model uh and it can't run simulations in its head to find whether something is true in the world or not do you think within so it's taking a huge amount of text from the internet and forming a compressed representation do you think in that could could emerge something that's an approximation of a world model, which essentially could be used for reasoning. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, so I'm not talking about GPT-3, I'm talking about GPT-4, 5, and GPT-10. Yeah, I mean, they will look more impressive than GPT-3. So you can, if you take that to the extreme, then uh, a Markov chain of just first order, and if you, if you uh, go to, um, I'm, I'm taking it the other extreme. If you read Shannon's uh, book, mm-hmm. right, uh, he has a model of English text, which is based on first-order Markov chains, second-order Markov chains, third-order Markov chains, and saying that, okay, third-order Markov chains look better than uh, first-order Markov chains. Yeah. And so does that mean a first-order Markov chain has a model of the world? Yes, it does. Uh, so yes, in that level, uh, when you go higher-order models or more uh, sophisticated structure in the model like the transformer networks have. Yes, they have a model of the text world. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not a model of uh, the world. It's it's a model of the text world and it will have in- interesting uh, properties and it will be useful, but just scaling it up is not going to give us a GI or natural language understanding or meaning. The the question is uh, whether being forced to compress a very large amount of text forces you to construct things that are very much like, um, because the ideas of concepts and meaning is a a spectrum. Uh, Sure, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So in order to form that kind of compression, maybe it will uh, be forced to figure out uh, abstractions which look awfully a lot like the kind of things that we think about as uh, as concepts, as world models, as common sense. Is that possible? No, I don't think it is possible because the information is not there. Well, the, the information is, uh, is there behind the text, right? No, because unless somebody has written down all the details about how everything works in the world, to the the absurd amounts, like okay, it is easier to walk forward than backward. Uh, that you have to open the door to go out of the thing. Uh, doctors wear underwear. 
you know, are, are, unless all these things somebody has written down somewhere or, you know, somehow the program found it to be useful for compression from some other text, uh, the information is not there. So that's an argument that like text is a lot lower fidelity than the, you know, the experience of our physical world. Got like, it, got it. Yeah. So pictures worth a thousand words, like that <laughs> kind of thing. Well, in this case, pictures aren't really so the the richest aspect of the physical world isn't even just pictures. It's the uh, it's the interactivity exactly. with the world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's being able to um, yeah interact. It's almost like. It's almost like if you could interact. So I, I, I disagree. Well, maybe I agree with you that pictures worth a thousand words, but a thousand is still uh, yeah. Is, you could say you could capture it with a GPT X. <laughs> so I wonder if there's some interactive element where a system could live in text world, where it could um, be part of the chat, be part of you know talking to people. It's it's interesting. I mean, fundamentally, so you you're making a statement about the limitation of text. I okay. Let's, so let's say we have a text corpus that includes basically every experience we could possibly have. I mean, just a very large corpus of text, uh, and also interactive components. I guess the question is whether the neural network architecture, these very simple transformers, but if they had like hundreds of trillions or whatever comes after a trillion uh, parameters, whether that could store the information uh, needed. That's architecturally. Do you have like do you have thoughts about the limitation on that side of things of, with neural networks? I mean, so. Transformer is, you know, still a feed-forward neural network. This, uh, uh, it's, it has a very uh, interesting architecture, which is good for uh, text modeling and probably some aspects of uh, video modeling. But it is still a feed-forward architecture. And you it, believe in the the feedback mechanism, recursion. Oh, and and also cause, you know, causality, like you know, being able to do counterfactual reasoning, being able to do, you know, interventions, which is uh, uh, um, uh, actions in the world. Uh, so all those things uh, require different kinds of models to be built. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think uh, Transformers uh, captures that uh, family. It is very good at statistical modeling of text. Uh, yeah. and, and it will become better and better with more data, uh, bigger models. But that is only going to get so far. You know, finally, when you... in uh, So I had this joke on uh, uh, Twitter saying that, hey, this is a model that has read all of quantum mechanics and uh, theory of relativity, and we are asking it to do text completion, or yeah. you know, we are asking asking it to solve simple puzzles. Yeah. That's you know, when when you have AGI, if you if you you know, that's not what you ask a system to do. If it has you know, we ask we'll ask the system to do experiments. You know, what should, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, and come up with hypothesis and uh, you know, revise the hypothesis based on evidence from experiments. All those things, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that we want the system to do when we have AGI, not solve simple puzzles. So. <laughs> like uh, impressive demo, somebody generating a red button in HTML. Right. Uh, uh, Which are all useful. Like, you know, there's no, not dissing the, the usefulness of, yeah. So I get, by the way, I'm, I mean, playing a little bit of a, a devil's advocate. Uh, so calm down internet. Uh, the, so I just, I'm curious almost in which ways will a dumb but large neural network will surprise us. Yeah. So like I'm 
it's kind of your, I completely agree with your intuition. It's just that I don't want to uh, dogmatically like a hundred percent put all the chips there. Right, right. It's, we've been surprised so much. Even the current GPT two and three are so surprising. Yeah. Uh, the self-play mechanisms of alpha zero are really surprising. And I uh, reinforcement the fact that reinforcement learning works at all to me is really surprising. The fact that neural networks work at all is is quite surprising, given how nonlinear the space is. The fact that it's able to find local minima that are at all reasonable is very surprising. So yeah. it, uh, I I wonder sometimes whether us humans just want it to not. The, for AGI not to be such a dumb thing. <laughs> so I, I just, because exactly what you're saying is like um, the ideas of concepts and be able to reason with those concepts and, and connect those concepts in uh, like hierarchical ways. And then to be able to have uh, world models. I mean, just everything we're describing in human language in this poetic way uh, seems to make sense that that is what intelligence and reasoning are like. I, I wonder if at the core of it, it could be much dumber. Uh, well, That's... finally, it is still connections and messages passing over them, right? Right. So, so in that <laughs> way, it's dumb. <laughs> so, uh... so I guess the recursion, the the feedback mechanism, th that does seem to be a fundamental kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. The idea of concepts, also memory. Correct. Yeah, like having an episodic memory. Yeah. yeah, that seems to be an important thing. So how do we get memory? So yeah, we have another piece of work that which uh, came out recently on how do you form episodic memories and uh, and form abstractions from them. Uh, and we haven't figured out a you know all the connections of that to the overall cognitive architecture. But um, well, yeah, what are your ideas about how you could have episodic memory? So at least it's very clear that. There, you need to have two kinds of memory, right? That that's very very clear, right? Which is there are things that happen uh, as statistical patterns in the world, uh, but then there is the 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 one timeline of things that happen only once in your life, right? Uh, uh, and this day is not going to happen ever again, and and so and that needs to be stored as a as a you know just a stream of uh, strings, right? This yeah. is this is my experience, and then. Then the question is about how do you take that experience and connect it to the statistical part of it? How do you now say that, okay, I experienced this thing. Now I want to be careful about similar situations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so you need to be able to index that similarity using your other giant statistics, you know, the, the model of the world that you have learned. Although the situation came from the episode, you need to be able to index the other one. So, uh, the episodic memory being impl implemented as an indexing over the other uh, model that you are building. So the memories remain, and they uh, they uh, they they're an index into this like the statistical thing that you formed. Yeah, statistical causal structural model that you built uh, over over time. So so it's basically the idea is that uh, the hippocampus is. Uh, just storing or sequencing uh, a you know set of pointers that happens over time, mm -hmm. and then whenever you want to reconstitute that memory and evaluate the different uh, 
aspects of it, whether it was good, bad, do I need to encounter the situation again? You need the cortex uh, to reinstantiate, to replay that memory. So how do you find that memory? Like w- which direction is the important direction? Both directions are, you know, it's again bidirectional. You know? <laughs> so I, mean, it, I guess, how do you retrieve the memory? So this is again hypothesis, right? Yeah, We're making this up. So when you uh, when you come to a uh, new situation, right, uh, your your cortex is doing inference uh, over th- in the new situation, and then uh, of course hippocampus is connected to different parts of the cortex, uh, and and you have this deja vu situation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I have seen this thing before, and uh, and then in the hippocampus you can have an index of okay, this is when it happened. As a, as, a, as a timeline, uh, and 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 then you, then you can use the hippocampus to drive the the similar timelines to say now I am I am rather than being driven by my current input stimuli, I am going back in time and uh, rewinding yeah, my experience from there, it. but putting back into the cortex and then putting it back into the cortex. Of course, affects what you're going to see next in your current situation. Got it. Yeah. So that's that's the whole thing: having a world model and then adjust, yeah, uh, connecting to the perception. Yeah, it does seem to be that that's what's happening. It'd be uh, on the neural network side. It's um, it's interesting to think of how we actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. To have it a knowledge base. Yes, it is possible that you can put many of these structures into uh, neural networks, and we will find ways of combining properties of neural networks and graphical models. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, it's already started happening. Yes. Uh, graph neural networks are kind of a merge between them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there will be more of that thing. So, but to me, it is, the direction is pretty clear. I mean, looking at biology and the history, history of uh, uh, evolutionary history of intelligence, it is pretty clear that, uh, okay, w- what is needed is more structure in the models and uh, modeling of the world and supporting dynamic inference. Well, let me ask you, uh, there's a guy named Elon Musk, there's a company called Neuralink, and there's a general field called brain-computer interfaces. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, a interface between your two uh, loves, which yes. is the brain <laughs> and the intelligence. Uh, so there's like very direct applications of brain-computer interfaces for, um, People with different conditions, more in the short term. Yeah, but there's also these sci-fi futuristic kinds of ideas of uh, AI systems being able to uh, communicate in a high bandwidth way with the brain, bidirectional. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, Neuralink and BCI in general as a, as, a, as a possibility? So I think BCI is a cool research area, and uh, in fact. Um, when I got interested in brains initially, when you know, so I was enrolled at Stanford, and when I got interested in brains, it was it was through a brain uh, computer interface talk that mm. Krishna Shenoy gave. That's when I even started thinking about the problem. So, uh, so it is definitely a fascinating research area, and it is the applications are enormous, right? Um, so, you know, there is a science fiction scenario of you know brains directly communicating. That's you know, let's keep that aside for the time being. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, even just the the intermediate milestones they're pursuing, which are very reasonable as far as I can see, uh, being able to control an external limb using uh, uh, you know, direct connections from the brain and being able to write things into the brain. Uh, so, so those are all uh, 
good steps to take and they have enormous applications you know people losing limbs being able to control prosthetics uh, quadriplegics being able to control something uh, so and therapeutics and you know i i also know about another company working in this space uh, called paradromics uh, they're doing you know it's based on a, a different uh, electrode array but trying to attack some of the same problems so i think it's a very also surgery correct surgically implanted electrodes yeah, yeah. um so uh, yeah i i think of it as a uh, very very promising field especially when it is helping people overcome uh, some limitations now at some point of course it will advance the level of being able to communicate uh, how hard is that problem do you think like so so okay let's yeah. say we magically solve what i think is a really hard problem of doing all of this safely yeah so so like being able to uh, connect electrodes and not just thousands but like millions to yeah. the brain i i think it's very very hard because you also do not know what the what will happen to the brain with that right in the sense so how does the brain adapt to something like that and it's you know as we were learning it's the brain is quite uh in terms of neuroplasticity is pretty malleable correct so it's going to adjust correct so the machine learning side the computer side is going to adjust and then the brain's going to adjust exactly and then what what soup does this land us into is the <laughs> kind of the kind of hallucinations you might get from this right. <laughs> that might be pretty intense yeah So uh, just connecting to all of wikipedia it's interesting whether we need to be able to figure out the basic protocol of the brain's communication schemes in order to get them to the machine and the brain to talk because another possibility is the brain actually just adjusts to whatever the heck the computer is doing exactly that's the way i think that i find that to be a prom- more promising way it's basically saying you know okay attach electrodes to some part of the cortex okay and makes sure, maybe it, if it is done from birth the brain will adapt it says that you know that part is not damaged it was not used for anything yeah. these electrodes are attached there right and now you you train that part of the brain to do this high bandwidth communication between something else right yeah. and and uh, if you do it like that i then it is brain adapting to and of course your external system is designed such that it is adaptable you know just like we you know design computers or mouse keyboard all of them to be uh a, 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 uh interacting with humans so yeah. uh, of course that feedback system is designed to be uh human compatible but um now it is not trying to record from the all of the brain and uh, uh you know now you know two system trying to adapt to each other it's a brain adapting into one way so. <laughs> that's fascinating <laughs> the brain is connected to like the internet it's connected to, yeah <laughs> <laughs> just imagine it's connecting it to twitter and just 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 taking that stream yeah of information um yeah but again if we take a step back i don't know what your intuition is i feel like that is not as hard of a problem as the doing it safely there's um, there's a huge barrier to surgery right cuz cuz the biological system Correct. it's Correct. A, it's a, it's a mush of like weird stuff Correct. so that the surgery part of it biology part of it the the long term repercussions part of it again i don't know what else will uh, you know we we often find uh, after a long time uh, in biology that okay that idea was wrong right you know so people used to cut off this uh, uh, the gland called the thymus or something mm-hmm. uh, and 
uh, then they found that oh no that actually causes uh, cancer <laughs> so <laughs> yeah and then there's a subtle like millions of variables involved but this whole process the nice thing just like again with Elon just like colonizing Mars seems like a ridiculously difficult idea but in the process of doing it we might learn a lot about the biology of the, the neurobiology of the brain the neuroscience side of things it's like If you want to learn something, do the most difficult version of it. Yeah. <laughs> and see what I, you learn. The intermediate steps that they are taking sounded all very reasonable to me. Again, yeah. yeah it, so. It's great. Yeah. Well, but like everything with Elon is the timeline seems insanely fast, so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's that's the only open question. Uh well, one we've been talking about cognition a little bit, so like reasoning. We haven't mentioned the other C word, which is consciousness. Uh, do you ever think about that one? Do you, is that useful at all uh, in this whole context of what it takes to create an intelligent reasoning being, or is that completely outside of uh, your uh, like the engineering perspective of intelligence? <laughs> so, uh, it is not outside the realm, but it it doesn't on a day to day way, uh, you know basis inform what we do. But it's more so in in many ways the company name is connected to. this uh, idea of consciousness like what's what's the company name vicarious you know yeah. so vicarious is the company name and uh, and so what does vicarious mean right it's um uh, at the first level it is about modeling the world and uh, and it is internalizing the external actions so so you interact with the world and learn a lot about the world and now after having learned a lot about the world you sh- you can run those things in your mind without actually having to uh, act in the world so you can run uh, things vicariously just in your in your in your brain and similarly you can experience another person's thoughts by you know having a model of how that person works and uh, and running their you know putting yourself in some other person's shoes so that is being vicarious now it's the same modeling apparatus that you're using to model the external world or some other person's thoughts you can turn it to yourself you can up, you know if, if that same modeling thing is applied to your own modeling apparatus uh, then that is what gives rise to consciousness i think well that's more like self awareness there's the hard problem of consciousness which is like when the model becomes when when the model feels like something when this right. whole process is like it act, it's like you really are in it it you feel like an entity in this world not just you know that you're an entity but it feels like something to be that entity it um uh, it you know and, and thereby we attribute this you know the, then it starts to be where in something that has consciousness can suffer you start to have these kinds of things that we can reason about that yes is much um uh, much heavier It seems like there's much greater cost to your your decisions and like mortality is tied up into that like the fact that these things end. Right. <laughs> that first of all I end at some point and then other things end and you know that that somehow seems to be at least for us humans a deep motivator. Yes. And that you know that that idea of motivation in general we talk about goals in AI but Right. the goals aren't quite the same thing as like the our mortality it feels like 
it feels like, first of all, humans don't have a goal and they just kind of create goals at different levels. They like make up goals because we're terrified by the mystery of the thing that <laughs> that gets us all. So we, 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 we make these goals up. So we're like a goal generation machine as opposed to a machine which optimizes the trajectory towards a singular goal. Mm -hmm. So it feels like that's an important part of uh, cognition, that whole mortality thing. Well, it is It is a part of human uh, cognition, uh, but there is no uh, reason for uh, that mortality to come to the question for a uh, artificial system because we can... Uh, copy the artificial system. The, the the problem with humans is that we ca I can't clone you. I can't. I, I you know I can I can clone even if I clone you as a uh, you know the the hardware, your experience uh, that was stored in your brain, uh, your uh, episodic memory, all those will not be captured in the in the new clone. Um, so, um, but that is not the same with an AI system, right? So, but it's also possible that the the thing that you mentioned with, with, with us humans is actually fundam of fundamental importance for intelligence. So like the fact that you can copy an AI system yeah. means that that AI system is not yet an um, AGI. So like, there, it could, so if you look at existence proof, yeah. if, if, we, if we reason yeah. based on existence proof, with, you could say that it doesn't feel like death is a fundamental property of an intelligent system, Correct. but we don't yet, Give me an example of an immortal intelligent being. Uh, we don't have those. It could, it's very possible that, you know, that's, that is a fundamental property of intelligence is a thing that ha has a deadline for itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can think of it like this. So suppose you invent a way to freeze people uh, for a long time. It's not dying, right? Yeah. Uh, so... So you can be frozen and woken up uh, thousands of years from now. Uh, so it's no fear of death. <laughs> so <laughs> well, no, the, you're still. It's it's that's not it's, it's not about time. It's about the knowledge that it's temporary. Uh huh. And the that aspect of it, the finiteness of it, I think um, creates a kind of urgency. Correct. For us, for humans. Yeah, for humans. Yes, uh, and that that is part of our drives. Uh, but um, and that's why I'm not too worried about AI. Uh, you know, uh, having motivations to kill all humans and uh, those kinds of things. Why just wait? You know, so <laughs> so <laughs> why do you need to do that? Yeah, I've never heard that before. That's a good. That's a good point. <laughs> Yeah, just murder seems like a lot of work. We'll yeah. just wait it, wait it out. <laughs> They'll probably hurt themselves. <laughs> Let me ask you, um, people often kind of wonder, world-class researchers such as yourself, what kind of books, technical, fiction, philosophical, were um, uh, had an impact on you in your life and uh, maybe ones you could pro possibly recommend that others read? Maybe if you have three books that pop into mind. Yeah. So I definitely liked uh, Judea Pearl's book, uh, Probabilistic Reasoning and Intelligent Systems. It's um, it's a very deep technical book. But what I liked is that, in, so there are many uh, places where you can learn about probabilistic graphical models from. But throughout this book, Judea Pearl kind of sprinkles his 
philosophical observations and <laughs> and he thinks about connects us to how the brain thinks and attentions and resources all those things so so that whole thing makes it more interesting to read uh, he emphasizes the importance of causality so that was in his later book so this was the, the first book probabilistic reasoning in intelligence systems he mentions causality but he hadn't really sunk his teeth into like you know how do you actually formalize that yeah and uh, the second book causality was so 2000 uh, the one in 2000 that one is really hard so i wouldn't recommend that uh, uh yes yeah, so that looks at the like the mathematical like his model of uh do calculus do calculus yeah it was pretty right. dense mathematical right right yeah. right uh the book of why is definitely more enjoyable oh for sure yeah. yeah um so yeah so i would i would recommend probabilistic reasoning in intelligent systems another book i liked uh was uh one from Doug Hofstadter uh this is a long time ago he has a book he had a book i think called it was called the mind's eye it was um uh probably hofstadter and daniel dennett together um, yeah so and i actually was uh i i bought that book so much i haven't read it yet but i uh i couldn't get an electronic version of it which is annoying because i'm read everything on kindle Oh, okay. Uh, so you <laughs> had to actually purchase the physical. It's like one of the only physical books I have because yeah. anyway, there's a lot of people recommend it highly. So, yeah. yeah. And the third one uh I would definitely recommend reading is um uh this is not uh, a technical book. It is history. It's called it's the name of the book I think is Bishop's Boys. It's about Wright brothers and uh, and their 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 path and how it was uh It's, there are multiple books on this topic and all of them are uh, great it it's um uh fascinating how a uh, flight was uh you know treated as an unsolvable problem and 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 also you know what aspects did people emphasize uh you know people thought oh it is all about uh, just powerful engines you know just need how powerful lightweight engines uh and um so uh, you know some people thought of it as oh, how far can we just throw the thing you know just throw it <laughs> like a catapult <laughs> yeah so uh, so it is it's a very fascinating and even after they uh made the invention like you know people not believing it and uh, uh ah the social aspect of it the, yeah, the yeah. social aspect of it, it's, it's diff- you know very fascinating I mean, do you do you uh, draw any parallels between you know birds fly so there's the natural approach to uh to flight and then there's the engineered approach do you uh, do you see the same kind of thing with the brain and our trying to engineer intelligence yeah it's it's a good analogy to have uh of course all analogies have their you know uh, yeah, so 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 <laughs> sure. merits uh, so people in uh, you know ai often uh use airplanes yeah. as an example of hey we didn't learn anything from birds look right. there yeah. but the the funny thing is that uh, and and the, the saying is uh, airplanes don't flap wings yeah. right this is what they say the funny thing and the ironic thing is that that you don't need to flap to fly is something right brothers found by observing birds <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah exactly. so they they have in their notebook like you know in some of these uh, books they show their their notebook drawings right they they make detailed notes about buzzards uh, just soaring over uh, thermals yeah. and uh, they basically say look flapping is not the important propulsion is not the important problem to solve yeah. here we want to solve control 
uh, and uh, once this all control propulsion will fall into place all of the, all of these are people uh, you know they re- relate this by observing birds <laughs> <So>. <laughs> beautifully put <laughs> that, that's actually brilliant because uh, people do use that analogy a lot. I'm gonna have to remember that one do you have a, advice for people interested in artificial intelligence like young folks today I talk to undergraduate students all the time uh, interested in neuroscience, interested in um, understanding how the brain works. Is there advice you would give them about their career, maybe about their life in uh, general? Sure, I think every you know every piece of advice should be taken with a pinch of salt, of course, <laughs> uh, because you know each person is different; their motivations are different. Uh, yeah. But I can, I can definitely say, if your goal is to understand the brain from the angle of wanting to build one, you know. Uh, then uh, being an experimental neuroscientist might not be the way to go about it. Um, uh, it might, a better way to pursue it might be through um, computer science, electrical engineering, machine learning, and AI. And of course, you have to study up the neuroscience, but that you can mm-hmm. do on uh, your own. Um, if you are more uh, attracted by finding something intriguing about, discovering something intriguing about the brain, uh, then of course it is uh, better to be an experimentalist. Uh, so find that motivation. What are you intrigued by? And of course find your strengths too. Some people are very good experimentalists uh, and and they enjoy doing that. Uh, and it's interesting to see which department, if you're if you're picking uh, in terms of like your education path, whether to um, uh, to, to go with like in, in at MIT it's brain and computer uh, no uh, BCS. Yeah, brain, mm-hmm. brain and cognitive sciences. Yeah, uh, or or the CS side of things. Right, and actually, uh, the brain folks, the neuroscience folks, are more and more now embracing of the uh, you know learning TensorFlow by torch. <laughs> right, they 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 see the power of uh, trying to engineer ideas uh, that uh, that they get from the brain into and then explore how those could be used to. Uh, to create intelligent systems. So that might be the right department actually. Yeah. To, uh... So this was a question in uh, uh, you know one of the Redwood Neuroscience Institute workshops organ- uh, that Jeff Hawkins organized mm-hmm. uh, uh, almost 10 years ago. This question was put to a panel, right? What, what should be the undergrad major yeah. uh, you should take if you want to understand the brain? And, uh, and the majority opinion in that one was uh, electrical engineering. <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> so, uh, because I mean I, I'm a doubly undergrad, so I yeah. got lucky in that way. Uh, um, but it, I, I think it does have some of the right ingredients because you learn about circuits, you you learn about how you can construct circuits to, uh, you know, approach, you know, do functions. Uh, you learn about microprocessors. Um, you learn information theory. You learn signal processing. Uh, you learn continuous math. So, um, so in that way, it's it's a good step. To, if you want to go to computer science or neuroscience, you can, it's, it's a good step. The downside, you're more likely to be forced to use MATLAB. <laughs> so so, so <laughs> one, of the, one of the interesting things about, I mean, this is changing, the world is changing, yeah. but uh, like certain departments lagged on the programming side of things, right, right. on developing good, uh, good habits in terms of software engineering. But I think right. that's more and more changing and and students can take that into their own hands, like okay, learn exactly. to program. Exactly. I feel like everybody should learn to program because it uh, 
it, like everyone in the sciences, because it empowers, it puts the data at your fingertips. So you can organize it, you can find all kinds of things in the data, and then you can also, for the appropriate sciences, build systems that like based on that. So like then engineer intelligence systems. Uh, we already talked about mortality, so we hit no <laughs> <laughs> a ridiculous uh, point. But let me ask you the, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things about intelligence is it's goal driven, and uh, you study the brain. So the question is like, what's the goal that the brain is operating under? What's what's the meaning of it all for us humans, in your view? What's the meaning? of life <laughs> the meaning of life is whatever you construct out of it it's completely open <laughs> it's open yeah so there's not there's nothing uh uh like you mentioned you like constraints so there's <laughs> what's uh it's 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 wide open is there is there some useful aspect that you think about in terms of like the, the openness of it and just the basic mechanisms of generating goals uh, in studying cognition in the brain that that you think about? Or is it just about, because everything we've talked about, kind of the perception system is to understand the environment. That's yeah. like to be able to like not die. Correct, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like not fall over and like be able to, uh, you don't think we need to um, think about anything bigger than that. Yeah, I think so, because it, it's it's basically being able to, understand the machinery of the world uh, such that you can pursue whatever goals you want, right? So the machinery of the world is is, is really ultimately what we should be uh, striving to understand. The rest is just, the rest is just whatever f the yeah. heck you want to do or whatever, whatever <laughs> fun you is culturally popular, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> I, that's beautifully put. I don't think there's a better way to and Dilip, I'm so honored that you you would show up here <laughs> and waste your time with me. It's been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for talking today. Oh, thank you so much. This was this was so much more fun than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this conversation with Dilip George. And thank you to our sponsors, Babbel, Raycon Earbuds, and Masterclass. Please consider supporting this podcast by going to babbel.com and use code LEX going to buy raycon.com slash lex and signing up at masterclass.com slash lex. Click the links, get the discount. It really is the best way to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review the five stars on Apple Podcast, support it on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled, yes, without the E, just F-R-I-D-M-A-N. And now let me leave you with some words from Marcus Aurelius, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.